Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 216, Bignon's Defense of Calvinism, Part 1. Dr. Guillaume Bignon is a French analytic philosopher who works in computer science in the financial industry in New York City. He also serves on the executive committee of Axiom, a society of French-speaking Christian scholars. He's here with us today to discuss his recent book, Excusing Sinners and Blaming God, a Calvinist Assessment of Determinism, Moral Responsibility, and Divine Involvement in Evil. You can follow him on Twitter, where he has the catchy handle Theologi, just the word theology, and then change the last three letters to G-U-I, as in Guillaume. Dr. Bignon, welcome to the Trinity's Podcast. Well, thank you, Dale. Thanks for having me. How did you become a Christian, and how did you come to write this extended and sophisticated defense of Calvinism? Well, the story of how I became a Christian is a little bit long, and there's, uh, it's very difficult to give the condensed, very short uh, version of the story. But I grew up in France as an atheist. Uh, I mean, we grew up in a Catholic family, uh, nominally at least. And uh, I grew up, and as soon as I was old enough to tell my parents that I didn't really believe any of this stuff, I lived my life as an atheist. And then I simply... Uh, worried about other things, and I had a f- fairly happy life uh, as a young adult. I grew up to play volleyball, uh, to play music in the band. I was uh, in engineering schools, and I ended up uh, being a computer scientist. I'm pretty happy about my life. And then there's a, a number of very improbable and uh, entertaining events that uh, happened to me that ended up flipping my entire life upside down. Uh, I'll I tell the detail of that in my next book, actually, so we'll see if uh, that uh, <laughs> that's something that the American public might read in a bit le- uh, lengthier details. But uh, I'll spare all the, the fun details. I ended up uh, being a Christian. And as uh, soon as I uh, became one, I found myself engaged in trying to explain all of my family and friends why I hadn't lost my mind. And I was naturally engaging in what I at the time didn't know what's called apologetics. I was trying to tell them, well, here is a good reason. There are some of the things that I've considered and that have convinced me that Christianity is true. And uh, in the midst of that, I started to pick up some material. I had thought of good reasons for why Christianity was true in my conversion, but there's also a number of things that I discovered afterwards. So uh, through apologetics, I realized that uh, history and philosophy and science were all relevant fields. So I started to research those things as a layman. And um, one thing led to another. Uh, you know, the more you read, the more you like it, and the more you research. So. I ended up spending a very significant portion of my time uh, studying those things. And after a while, I figured, well, if I'm going to be spending all of my time and all my resources studying those things, I might as well get a degree out of this. So I ended up applying for seminary. I uh, obtained a master's in New Testament studies. Shortly after that, I uh, applied for 
PhD programs and uh, found my way again through lots of recommendations. Uh, so my uh, New Testament studies teacher pointed me to Peter J. Williams in the uh, UK uh, at Tyndale House to figure out if I could find a UK program for a doctoral study. Peter Williams pointed me to Daniel Hill at the University of Liverpool and who subsequently pointed me to uh, Paul Helm. And Paul Helm was supervising doctorates in, uh, in a UK school called London School of Theology. So all through all of this uh, hot potato passing of the French guy, I ended up in the arms of uh, Paul Helm for the PhD. And so I did my doctoral work with Paul Helm. The topic of the research, and obviously Paul Helm is a little bit the household name on Calvinism, um, I didn't pick my topic because of a supervisor. I was also uh, incidentally very interested in the in the topic of uh, the reform view of free will and predestination and basically Calvinism as it's uh, commonly understood. And that I was partly interested because, uh, well, because it's a fun, controversial topic for one. So uh, I guess I had that philosopher vibe uh, with me to say, oh, if it's controversial, it's fun. There's lots of arguments. Uh, I wanted to be in there. And also because of my own conversion story, I'm fully convinced that we develop our theology from the scripture and from sound reasoning, but there's a certain bite that is going to come from how one becomes a Christian. And I suppose my story has made me very aware of the sovereignty of God in choosing me from deep unbelief and hatred of religion and really stepping out of his way to completely flip my life upside down in very improbable circumstances uh, in ways that I don't see him uh, change other people's lives. So it's kind of impressed me with the deep sense of the fact that I wasn't seeking for God. I wasn't open to the things of the Spirit. He just kind of grabbed me and in a way that would be very consistent with uh, how Calvin conceived of election. Chose me, changed my heart, made me a Christian, and uh, here I am. So that type of conversion had motivated me to think a little bit about those topics of free will and sovereignty. I was persuaded by scripture and reason that the Calvinist point of view was correct. And so when I was put in touch with Paul Helm, it was a wonderful match. And I was able to do my doctoral work on exploring the metaphysics of free will from a Calvinist point of view. Now, I wanted to ask you when you really committed to a fully Calvinist theology. Was that when you were doing your master's in New Testament or? I guess fully committed is a bit of a, an ambiguous uh, description. I guess I was already, I believed that the Calvinistic outlook was correct before I started the New Testament studies. I had just, you know, from my pastor conversations and readings and and I guess some of my own personal study of apologetics, I was basically convinced by the arguments of the reform side. But I wouldn't say I was extremely, at least not evangelistic about my Calvinism. Um, but yeah, it uh, got strengthened. Uh, in seminary, I had two main teachers, uh, one of whom was a very outspoken Arminian and the other one was a very outspoken Calvinist. And I ended up being very good friends with both of them. So we had uh, lots of conversations, uh, friendly and always uh, challenging one another. And so it was solidified in seminary through those conversations and studies. And then afterwards, yeah, I, I, the more I studied and thought about this. On the side of seminary, my uh, biblical theology professor, so that's the one who was the Calvinist, told me when he was handing back some papers uh, about the topic, he said, hey, there's a couple of good things there um, that I haven't seen elsewhere. Have you ever considered writing a book about this? And I thought, no, I haven't. <laughs> and uh, he 
convinced me to try to put down some of my thoughts in a little bit of a longer uh, matter. So I did that. Thank God it was never published. <laughs> it was my first attempt at uh, systematizing those things. But I had a lot of material on the side of seminary ready to be used when I finally um, my doctoral studies at Paul Helm. Uh, I have prepared material that I could tap into. And obviously, we, it got shortened, it got uh, deepened, and uh, I did a lot of re additional reading and research for the PhD. But I had all of that material, I guess, prepared before I started the, the PhD proper. Mm -hmm. Now, Paul Helm isn't necessarily a household name for all Christians, but he's very well known as a Christian philosopher, very sharp guy, very nice guy. He kind of sticks out because there aren't a lot of Calvinist analytic Christian philosophers. Is it lonely in that camp? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, at some point it felt a little bit like uh, there wasn't so many of us, um, which felt good at the time I was starting to put together my proposal for a PhD. I figured, well, I'm seeing a lot of uh, interesting things to say about the metaphysics of free will from a Calvinistic point of view. There's lots of arguments that I want to put out there, and it doesn't seem like many of them are already doing that. So I felt a little bit alone at the beginning, and it wasn't all that bad. But uh, somewhat afterwards, I had somewhat of this uh, Elijah experience. Well, Lord, am I the only one? No, no, no. There's a number of them that haven't bowed the knee to Arminius. And uh, <laughs> those... Uh, those various uh, philosophers, I started to look into their work, and uh, it was very consistent with some of the ideas that I was uh, that I had come up with on my own. It was reinforcing. Some of them were challenging, but there's a, obviously not a majority, but there's a consistent number of Calvinist philosophers who are discussing the issues uh, from a very philosophical point of view and give a robust defense of Calvinism. So I'm thinking of folks like uh, Paul Helm, uh, but he, some of his doctoral students. Oliver Crisp, Daniel Hill was a former student of uh, Paul Helm. So Daniel Hill is published as a Molinist, but he's now a Calvinist. So he's an interesting fellow who changed his mind and has written at the very high philosophical level. I'm thinking of folks like uh, Paul Manara, Greg Welty, Daniel Johnson, and all of basically all the cast uh, that is in one of the recent volumes published by Wittgenstock called Calvinism and the Problem of Evil. Uh, there's lots of authors in there that are analytic philosophers and defending Calvinism, uh, James Anderson, Jay Bruce. So that's a, a number of folks that I've discovered a little bit later on and that I find consistent and doing some good work. Uh, some good work that I was frustrated not to see beforehand, quite frankly. But it was uh, nice to discover that there's a number of them defending those ideas there and doing a good job at it. I'll tell you something that most people don't know about me. A couple of things. Uh, one is that I used to be a sort of Calvinist. Mm -hmm. I went through, I would call it a Calvinist phase as an undergraduate. And I read Romans 9, and I was just like, well, that's obviously Calvinist view of human salvation and and divine election and if you don't like it well you're just a rationalist and you should just learn to like mysteries and <laughs> if you have another objection i'm just going to say the same thing i mean it didn't go much beyond that <laughs> i mean and, and i i could see that you know the tulip summary total depravity unconditional election limited atonement irresistible grace perseverance of the saints I could see how they all kind of fit together, and it seemed to me that if you accepted any one or at least any two of them, you kind of had to accept the others, and 
conversely, if you got rid of one, usually you're going to get rid of the others. And so that's what happened. I mean, I just, by examining the scriptures and thinking a lot more about divine providence and human freedom, I started to go in the other direction philosophically and theologically. My PhD dissertation was an attempt to articulate a, an intelligible libertarian theory of free will. <laughs> oh, wow. So, okay. So, so you're a specialist. I need to be careful what I say. It's going to be a fun conversation because we're just coming from really opposite poles. Um, and yet I get where you're coming from and I, I kind of see the appeal of it. When the Trinity's podcast returns, we define some important terms in this debate. For the purposes of this book, how do you define Calvinism? For the purposes of this book, I, I take one of two common understandings of Calvinism, and that distinction is made by uh, Daniel Johnson in his introductory essay on uh, the Calvinism and the problem of evil. Uh, I really found this distinction helpful. He says that commonly speaking, well, first of all, we don't refer to all of the things that John Calvin believed. Obviously, there's lots of different things that, we, that he taught. And when someone says today that they're a Calvinist, typically what they have in mind is his particular view of providence. Uh, so, Mm -hmm. free will, divine control of human choices, election, all of those topics that are somewhat uh, overlapping one another, have consequences on one another, those sorts of things. Typically, Calvinists say, well, I basically agree with what John Calvin was famously teaching on those things. But there, it's a helpful distinction to distinguish between uh, what uh, Danny Johnson calls uh, Calvinist soteriology, on the one hand, and Calvinist determinism on the other. So he thinks of Calvinist soteriology as a set of theological doctrines, the ones that you were listing earlier, kind of the, the famous acronym TULIP, so total depravity, unconditional election, the idea that God elects people regardless of any perceived future free choices, that it's God who sovereignly decides who ultimately is going to become a Christian, the limited atonement, this idea that God in Christ only pays the price for a definite amount of people that he efficiently redeems and not others. The uh, unconditional election, the perseverance of the saints, uh, this idea that people are going, to, once they actually come to a saving knowledge of Christ, they are not going to fall away from the faith. So those tulip acronym, those doctrines, uh, kind of what we can call Calvinist soteriology, it's a, it's a system, it's a, a number of theses that explain how God saves sinners. Yeah, and it's very systematic. I think that's a lot of its appeal. Like it's a, in a sense, it's kind of explain everything relating to salvation, how the whole thing works. Yeah, I think that's a nice, uh, helpful acronym to, to describe one view. I, I don't know that this should be seen as a motivation for Calvinists to adopt the view regardless of the view. You know? So I, I think that 
it's not more systematic than what would be the denial of all those doctrines. So it seems like uh, on the one hand, you affirm A, someone who affirms not A is not less systematic than you are, is simply disagreeing. So, but, but it's a nice, tight uh, explanation of uh, here is how God saves. So from somebody who agrees with those doctrines, it's a helpful acronym to uh, summarize various ins and outs of salvation from a Reformed point of view. So you have, on this one hand, Calvinist soteriology, and on the other is Calvinist determinism, which is a thesis more about the um, metaphysics of free will from this reform point of view. It's simply the belief that the outcome of our choices are ultimately determined by God's activity. So when you take a human being and place him in various sets of circumstances, in any one circumstance where he has to make a choice, the thesis would say that that person is determined, that the, um, the collective sets of influence on the person at the moment of choice, the, his past history, the influencing uh, factors, God's providential activity and the heart of the person at the moment, all of those things collectively determine one outcome of the choice. We can call that theological determinism. And for better or for worse, uh, many Calvinists uh, believe that when you affirm the basic soteriology of Calvinist soteriology with the Tulip acronym, a strong reformed view of free will, you're in a sense affirming Calvinist determinism, that you must affirm some sort of theological determinism in order to make all of those tr doctrines true. And obviously not all Calvinists are happy to say that Calvinism equates to determinism. I can think of Oliver Crisp, for example, who wrote books specifically saying, no, 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 Calvinist tradition is more broad than just those that affirm determinism. But I do think that uh, at least the, the TULIP acronym requires determinism. And uh, also, even if you take Oliver Crisp's measuring rod, which I think was uh, something like the Westminster Confession, or at least the intersection of the Westminster Confession and the London Baptist con uh, Confession, I think uh, even taking those statements uh, commit one to determinism. So the mm -hmm. the point of my book, and I, I don't you know I don't have a strong beef uh, with Oliver Crisp for saying that it's not necessary, but uh, I do think that many Calvinists affirm determinism in that fashion, and I do think that it's I mean it is my view for one, and I do think that it is uh, required by many of the things that Calvinists like to believe. So I don't support the inference in my book uh, Calvinism entails determinism, but it doesn't hurt the weight of my book because the Calvinist who doesn't like determinism can just see all of the questions that I ask. He can see them as resolving the conditional question. If Calvinism were to turn out to be deterministic, would it be so bad? And so this is what I survey. I affirm determinism and I try to resolve the problem that this seems to be uh, raising. But for a Calvinist who is not affirming determinism, he can just see my attempt to help him if it turned out that his Calvinism should have uh, made him a determinist. Right. And determinism, in your sense, I, I would paraphrase it as something like, in any circumstance, all the relevant factors in the past and present just require exactly one outcome. I mean, there's there's never different ways things can turn out in reality. Uh, you might think there are different possibilities for how a situation can turn out, but in fact, there is one way that things are going to turn out. And so consequently, you can have a divine plan that 
even at the first moment of time or in timeless eternity, depending on your view of God and time, the divine plan is going to be just all encompassing. It's going to encompass every single, everything that happens. Yeah, I think that's fair. That's that's about right. Uh, so that that everything that happens in time is ultimately uh, decreed by God, determined by God. He's the one who calls the shot, if you will. The main focus of this book are very detailed and intricate arguments about disagreements among philosophers about free will. And I like this about the book. It's all meat. You know, there's no filler material. It's just, bam, here's an argument. Which premise are you going to deny? Or bam, here's an argument, and I'm going to show you what's wrong with the argument. And it's, you know, it's just hammering constantly at yeah. arguments. And I like that. I mean, someone that makes formal arguments is willing to stick their neck out for what they think is right. And it's right in front of you, what you can agree or disagree with. And that is not the way that theology is normally written. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad that you enjoy it. I, I do think this is the way that philosophers should be writing their and defending their thesis. But uh, as a uh, as a joking aside, in the uh, foreword, Paul Helm uh, kindly wrote the foreword for the book, and uh, he said, with his uh, focus on uh, arguments, Guillaume Bignon is probably not your typical French philosopher. <laughs> so <laughs> right. so yeah. I, I, I'm going to take the, the compliments about the goodness of the focus on arguments, but yes, uh, my what you mean by a philosopher in my home country might be very different than what you and I take to be a philosopher. Yes, so, yes, and those of us who love analytics philosophy there's a lot of pain behind our laughing at that joke i know, uh, I know. reading foucault and people like that but anyway <laughs> yeah i have to apologize on behalf of my country <laughs> that's okay for inflicting this but these folks i didn't even know before i moved to the u.s quite frankly they're a big deal in american academia it seems uh, defending their postmodernism. but um, uh -huh. in france i mean i wasn't much of a philosopher before i left france to begin with but i discovered those uh, names and they're funny ideas. I discovered them from Americans who were complaining about them. And I had to join the chorus because this, this is utter nonsense. So that's not my approach to philosophy and certainly yeah. not in this book. Yeah. Well, you don't have to apologize for France. They've done lots of wonderful other things. Um, <laughs> good, good. But uh, yeah, it struck me in your book as a book defending Calvinism that there were a couple of things that a lot of Calvinists, I think, would disagree with or things that they would think are missing in the book. One is some Calvinists, like Calvin in some moods, really just poo-poo the idea of free will. Like that's just something that philosophers came up with, or it's a it's kind of a human mental idol. And uh, like free will, what a waste of time to, to discuss that. So I want to hear why you disagree with that. And the other thing is a lot of Calvinists will really just heavily emphasize mystery. And... They might also argue, but they're very quick to go for a mystery defense. And there is a little bit of that here, but it's more sort of under the hood. It's more in the background. It's, it's not your main point, really, I think, about most of the issues. So could you just comment on those two things? Yes, sure. So the, the, the first piece is uh, whether or not Calvinists like to affirm free will or even talk about it. I, I do think that uh, many of them who are reluctant to affirm free will 
simply work with the assumption that when we talk about free will, we mean libertarian free will, which is this mm-hmm. non-Calvinistic, it's non-deterministic view of free will, mm-hmm. is the view that says that uh, if you were determined, you would not be morally responsible, and in fact, you are morally responsible, therefore, you are not determined. So that libertarian understanding seems to be somewhat assumed by people apparently on both sides of the debate, which means that it leads the Calvinists to say, well, if that's what free will is, then we don't have it. And that seems to me to be the position, for example, of Martin Luther, who really goes after the phrase. I mean, in his book, The uh, the Bondage of the Will, where he's debating with Erasmus, he really goes after free will and says, well, what a joke of that uh, concept. And uh, I don't necessarily, you know, I don't find myself disagreeing with, with Luther. If he takes that to be libertarian free will, then we both disagree. But I do use in my book the more modern philosophical understanding of free will. And that understanding is simply this. It's more modest than this. It's simply saying that a person who has free will is one who meets the control condition for moral responsibility. So let me unpack this uh, fairly Mm -hmm. briefly for those who are not specialists in the field. Mm -hmm. Moral responsibility is a fairly intuitive concept. It's this idea that when we make choices uh, that are free enough, (laughs) we can be blamed or praised for them. That is, that we bear some responsibility Different philosophers unpack this somewhat differently. Uh, I think that uh, Kevin Timpey has a helpful summary of some of those understandings. He unpacks moral responsibility in terms of a ledger, but those ideas all converge with this basic notion we have that I, I make a choice, I do something that's good or bad, and if I was freely doing it, then I can be praised or blamed for it. That's mm-hmm. the basic notion of moral responsibility. And free will is normally uh, defined in philosophical circles today uh, to be the control condition, so that is that it's a necessary condition in order to have moral responsibility. There are other conditions than the control condition. For example, there are some epistemic conditions for moral responsibility. A common uh, illustration of that is that if I pour some uh, white substance in my wife's coffee, thinking it's sugar, but it turns out it's poison, then technically I've killed my wife, but I'm not blameworthy for it. because, uh, And it's not because I wasn't in control of what I was doing. I had free will. I, I controlled my action. It's just I was lacking some important piece of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Or just knowing right from wrong? Yeah, so <laughs> that that could be. If I don't know what's right and what's wrong, that mm-hmm. can be one thing that removes my moral responsibility. Yeah. But simply, if I'm genuinely thinking it's sugar and it turns out it's poison, I miss some knowledge that excludes my moral responsibility for that action. So there's epistemic conditions and control conditions. And free will is simply saying this. You have the you meet the control condition for moral responsibility. You're free enough that you, you, there's nothing wrong with how you made the choice to do that. Therefore, you can be properly praised or blamed for it. And when it's defined in an agnostic fashion like this, it doesn't tell you immediately anything about whether or not it's compatible with determinism. Hence, the debate that ensues between what we call compatibilists and incompatibilists. And they are simply folks who say that determinism is either compatible or incompatible with moral responsibility. And that's going to give us the the two basic sides on the debate that I'm uh, engaging in in the book. 
So that's for the explanation of free will. I think that understood like that, uh, Calvinists should affirm free will. That is that I think we should be saying that determinism is true and free will is true as well. Uh, that is that we can and do make morally responsible choices and those choices should be said to be free in the relevant sense, the sense that qualifies as moral responsibility. One way to cash out the difference between libertarian free will and compatibilist free will is in terms of control. One way you could put it is that a libertarian believes that sometimes humans have two-way control, that we're able to bring about more than one possibility, or it's up to us whether or not a certain choice gets made. And a compatibilist does believe in control, but in a sense it's not two-way because they're saying that free choice and free action are consistent with determinism and Given the relevant factors, there's never more than one outcome available, if I could put it that way. So control will just be one way, in a sense. Whatever causes are in play, they have to be occurring in the right fashion. And if they are, then we're going to say that you're in control of the choice and the action that comes out of that. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, that's that's the sort of difference you see in the literature, even on folks who don't necessarily call themselves Calvinists, but do defend compatibilism. They will speak of a different kind of control. So I'm thinking of uh, John Martin Fisher and uh, Mark Raviza, who speak of guidance control that uh, can be compatible with determinism. You meet the sufficient criteria to be morally responsible, and indeterminism is not one of those necessary ingredients. Right. And indeterminism here just means that sometimes something happens and there was more than one way that it could have turned out, given all the factors in play at that time. Yeah. The other question you asked was about uh, mystery and whether it's surprising that I don't immediately punt to mystery. I do find a few Calvinists would do that. Obviously, I don't think that there's anything wrong with affirming uh, mystery when there's a complex question where it seems like two apparently contradictory statements are both very strongly warranted, then there might be a resolution and it's okay sometimes to say, well, look, I don't know how they get resolved, but somehow that must be right and I'm not prepared to tell you how that works out. But I don't think that I need to make that move, uh, at least not until I'm really, really pushed uh, far into the, uh, the ropes. And in the issue of free will, it is commonly perceived that there is some force to the idea that in order to be morally responsible, you need to have the ability to do otherwise. It's the infamous principle of alternate possibility. And for some reasons that uh, you and I might discuss later on, I do find that that argument has a lot of intuitive pull initially. Now, obviously, I don't think that this is correct, but I do understand and I explain why it's initially plausible to the common man. So Calvinists can be feeling that pressure, thinking, oh, yeah, there might be something to it, but I'm affirming that, in fact, we don't have the ability to do otherwise if we are determined that's not the way it works. Therefore, there might be a tendency to punt at that level and say, well, I don't know how those things work out, and here's a mystery for you. So there's a, a few statements uh, in my book that, uh, by Calvinists, we tend to be a bit embarrassed. There are some folks who claim uh, cognitive limitations and 
can uh, uh, plead mystery and even say that it might be beyond logic or what have you. I don't really like that move. Um, the uh, the correct response to that is given to them by an open theist of all people. In the book, I mentioned David Bessinger, who's saying that, look, Calvinists, you guys need to relax. No one is affirming contradictions on your camp just yet. There's no explicit contradictions. So until we find and identify which theses you affirm that are mutually exclusive, there's no need to say that your Calvinism is bending logic or transcending logic or something like that. And I think I agree that's a good reminder and they should calm down, simply look at the thesis that they affirm and try to assess, look, are there good reasons to think that they're contradictory? And if someone offers an argument for why my beliefs are contradictory, then I can assess the argument. And until the argument is judged to be successful, there's no need to punt into mystery or to a bending of the laws of logic or a transcending of the laws of logic, whatever that may mean. And so I, I try not to do that. I try to take all the arguments that come my way, and God knows there's a lot of them. Uh, and then I try to assess, well, where did the argument go wrong? And if I can show something that's fairly plausible, it seems to me that I, I don't need to be saying my view is so mysterious that I can't even tell you what's wrong with the arguments against it. Yeah, I mean, why embrace what's an apparent contradiction and try to say that it's a wonderful thing if it's actually something that you don't need to commit to? I mean... Wouldn't it be a more satisfying response to say, actually, you know, we're not committed to that contradiction and it hasn't been shown that we are so committed? Yeah, that's right. That's what I do. That's a major burden of the book. You do that quite a lot throughout the book. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Bignon and I discuss the two common sorts of objections to Calvinism that he rebuts in this book as well as the famous passage in Paul's letter to the Romans, which so many read as teaching a Calvinist view of divine sovereignty and human salvation. So there are two basic objections that people have to a Calvinist view of human salvation. Why don't you tell us what those objections are? The two big objections, and I think they are more than just arguments, they are families of arguments, but they have the same big ideas. So there's, there's two of them. One is this idea that uh, human beings cannot be morally responsible if they are determined. This is straightforwardly the debate on compatibilism versus incompatibilism. Namely, is theological determinism, or determinism more loosely defined, is determinism compatible with moral responsibility? 
So I try to assess all the arguments that I can find uh, against the compatibility of determinism and moral responsibility. And the other objection that I take on in the book in slightly uh, smaller uh, amounts of space is somewhat of a corollary of that. It's somewhat related. And it's the idea that if we cannot be blamed for the bad that we do because we're determined to do it, then most likely God is to blame. So this is the idea that if God determines the outcome of our choices, that includes the bad choices that we make, and somehow that inappropriately involves God in our own evil. So now God is no more off the hook of the problem of evil, of, of our moral actions. He's now inappropriately involved in ways that make him blameworthy. So there's very different ways of formulating those two big objections. But they are there. That's the, the core of it. That's why I called the book Excusing Sinners and Blaming God, which are really what the two charges are against Calvinism, that on the one hand, if we're determined, then we can be excused for the bad things that we do. And on the other hand, that now we're in a position to blame God because he's the one who brought about that we did wrong, and therefore he's uh, blameworthy for it. So that's the somewhat congenial title that I came up with. And my wife has told me it was highly misleading because my title is funny and accessible, which my book is not. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's the way I describe those two big families of arguments. But um, A careless reader might think that you're in favor of excusing sinners and in favor of blaming God like your old self. But, yeah, uh, <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> There's no helping careless readers, so. Yeah, no, I don't think I can. Dr. Mignol, for you, the clearest biblical passage that teaches a Calvinist view of human salvation, uh, and which even sort of suggests that arguably presupposes your compatibilist strategy in this book, is this famous passage from Paul's letter to the Romans. So I wanted us to just listen to that and then discuss it a little bit, if that's okay with you. Yeah, by all means. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah, who is over all, God-blessed forever. Amen. It is not as though the word of God had failed, for not all Israelites truly belong to Israel, and not all of Abraham's children are his true descendants, but it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as descendants. For this is what the promise said, About this time I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Nor is that all. Something similar happened to Rebekah when she had conceived children by one husband, our ancestor Isaac, even before they had been born or had done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose of election might continue, not by works, but by his call, she was told, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. What then are we to say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he chooses, and he hardens the heart of whomever he chooses. You will say to me then, Why then does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who indeed are you, a human being, to argue with God? Will what is molded say to the one who molds it, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one object for special use and another for ordinary use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath that are made for destruction? And what if he has done so in order to make known the riches of his glory for the objects of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, including us whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called the children of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel were like the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will execute his sentence on the earth quickly and decisively. And as Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left survivors to us, we would have fared like Sodom and been made like Gomorrah. What then are we to say? Gentiles who did not strive for righteousness have attained it, that is, righteousness through faith. But Israel, who did strive for the righteousness that is based on the law, did not succeed in fulfilling that law. Why not? Because they did not strive for it on the basis of faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, See, I am laying in Zion a stone that will make people stumble, a rock that will make them fall, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I can testify that they have a zeal for God, but it is not enlightened. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes concerning the righteousness that comes from the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, on your lips and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart and so is justified, and one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. The scripture says, No one who believes in him will be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
Dr. Bignon, it's not clear to me that Paul here is really making a point about the salvation of individuals. I mean, he's talking about the status of Israel collectively now that the new covenant has come and, you know, has God's promise to Israel failed? And he says, no, basically, God is still using them for his purposes. So despite their collective rejection of the Messiah, they're still being used in God's plan. Um, it doesn't imply, of course, that the Jews are all dams, because if they confess and believe, they will be saved. He's praying that they will accept a new deal. It seems to me that you have to come to the passage with an interest in, you know, what's the explanation for why some people believe and why they don't, this kind of Augustinian question. And if you come to it that way, then it sounds like the election has to do with eternal destiny. But when I look at it, he does give examples about individual election, that is God choosing people for specific purposes. But I don't see that it has to do with salvation, how would you answer that sort of objection to the uh, Augustinian or Calvinist reading of Romans 9? These are common uh, points of debate in the uh, New Testament uh, literature about Romans 9. I, I do think that much of what he says about the uh, the, the twins uh, goes down to the level of individuals, and it does uh, translate into an ability by God to bring about uh, the fact that he's hardening those who he wants to harden and that he's uh, giving mercy to those who he wants to give mercy to. I don't take the uh, burden much of... Um, demonstrating that Romans 9 entails determinism or a, an Augustinian view of uh, salvation in my book. I, I do start there because I think it's a convenient uh, entry point for two reasons. One is that there are some strong statements about God controlling the outcome of human affairs. Let's put it this uh, uncontroversially. I think that uh, the, the even the Armenian will say, yes, there's a lot in Romans 9 about God's sovereign choice of election. Now, of course, there's going to be debates as to whether we're talking about election of nations or election for a different purpose than salvation. Mm -hmm. I do ultimately side with the more reformed interpretations of those, and um, the, the case is best made by New Testament commentaries that I respect rather than my own very modest uh, master's level uh, understanding of New Testament uh, theology. But um, the piece I do with Romans 9 is mostly to realize Look, he's talking about God's sovereignty over human affairs, and it's interesting that he's anticipating two kinds of objections from somebody. So he's anticipating uh, hypothetical objectors against him, and he's anticipating that people are going to find problem with his view by two accounts. One, that God shouldn't be holding us morally responsible. You know, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? It seems to be a rhetorical question that assumes, well, we can't resist his will, and therefore he shouldn't be finding fault. So we have smack dab in the middle of the chapter that's really touting God's sovereignty over human affairs, the anticipation of very much the objection that even to this day we find preeminent in arguments against Calvinism. And the other is a little bit less explicit, but he does uh, raise issues about God's righteousness. You know, is there injustice in God's part? So um, I'm not making a very strong claim that you cannot possibly read this thing without being a Calvinist or that you read that and it follows that determinism is true. But I pick up on those uh, anticipations here and I, I say very modestly, look, isn't that remarkable that those objections that are today the most important ones against Calvinism seem to be anticipated by Paul when he's talking about sovereign views of election and uh, providence over men? 
So I simply start like that. I'm not the only one who noticed that those objections are the same ones as today. I think that uh, I mentioned in the book, uh, the author of a uh, book, The Reform Doctrine of Predestination, that's uh, Lawrence Boetner, is the one who says that these are the very objections which today on first thought spring into men's mind in opposition to the Calvinist doctrine of predestination. But they have not even the least plausibility when directed against the Arminian doctrine. So he's saying a doctrine which does not afford the least grounds for these objections cannot have been the one that the apostle taught. Now, I think that he's phrasing things a bit more strongly than I would. I like to be a bit more modest because I'm a philosopher. I like to defend the things that I affirm. But I'm going a little bit in this direction saying, look, isn't that interesting? There's those two objections and they are there. Now, what does Paul say with those objections is is slapping on the finger of the objector. He's just saying, well, who do you think you are? Uh, Who are you meant to respond back to God? Obviously, that's not very satisfying for the objector to Calvinism today. But I I think that uh, it's not a measuring rod for what Calvinists should say today when they're receiving the objections. I think that Paul is supposing that the objector here is trying actually to excuse his own sin and to blame God, which uh, in all uh, charity, I can assume is not what my Armenian brothers are trying to do. So um, I think it's fair to go beyond what Paul says here and simply try to say, look, what seems to be the problem with the arguments and to assess them more philosophically today. Yeah, that's fair enough. And you're in this context, you're using Arminian to basically mean non-Calvinist. Isn't that right? So I'm an open theist, but I would be an Arminian under that definition. Yeah, that's correct. I guess a bit of definitions are called for on the uh, Calvin, on the non-Calvinist side as well. Um, Arminianism can be used broadly or more specifically. Mm-hmm. I think that when you unpack philosophically the various positions that you can find on the issue of free will and sovereignty, they really boil down to four different positions. I think that on the one hand, you want to resolve the compatibility question. So the, the determinism vis-a-vis more responsibility, mm-hmm. you find that you split the camps into two sides here. There's going to be two teams, one that is compatibilist and determinist. Mm-hmm. These are going to be the Calvinists on one side. And then on the other side is all the incompatibilists or libertarians. Mm-hmm. And then for those, you can subdivide them further into, I think, three basic camps based upon the sorts of foreknowledge that each is preferred to affirm about God. So you're going to find the... Um, open theists who say that God does not have foreknowledge of what we humans being will freely do in the future. You have the simple foreknowledge view or what is sometimes called classical Arminianism, where they affirm that we have libertarian free will, but God does foreknow what we will do in the future. Mm -hmm. And then there's the third view that is the Molinist view, which again still affirms libertarian free will, but asserts that God knows not just what we have done, what we are doing, what we will do but also what we would do in other hypothetical sets of circumstances. What we would freely do, yeah. Exactly. So those three positions are libertarian, they're incompatibilists, and it's okay, I think, and I do that. I refer to all of them as broadly Armenian in outlook, but technically speaking, we have classical Armenians or simple foreknowledge Armenians, open theists, and Molinists. And all of them can be referred to as the broadly Armenian team over against the Calvinist determinist view of free will. 
I think that's a correct classification, and just about all Christian philosophers that have published on this will fit into one of those four camps. Uh, there is one other camp, though, that I think is really important to include, which is Christians that are just utterly confused about the whole topic, <laughs> and they just, foreknowledge and free will, providence and free will, I, I guess I believe in both, and I have no idea what's going on. So yeah, and, and, and a question I think mark that's category. <laughs> yes, that's right, and and I think that's okay. Obviously, I don't think that every Christian needs to resolve that puzzle uh, in their research. I would add another category as well that I have tacitly excluded here that's not the uh, thoroughly confused. I, I don't like to put them in the Christian camp because it seems like they're denying something that I find to be really strongly demanded by Scripture. But, you know, out of charity, I do need to mention that they are there. And there are those that are incompatibilists, but also determinists. So these are the folks who are going to say determinism excludes moral responsibility yeah. and also determinism is true. Therefore, there is no such thing as moral responsibility. There's not too many folks who do that, yeah. but uh, Dirk Perryboom is a classic uh, advocate of this view and he you know, obviously claims to be a Christian and he's trying really hard to reconcile that with uh, the scriptures, but I don't want to exclude that view in my uh, classification. There are those yeah. who do affirm incompatibilism just like Armenians, but they are from determinism, just like Calvinists. They bite the bullet and say, yep, we are not morally responsible. But then you end up being a, a universalist, because if we're not blameworthy for anything, then God cannot condemn anybody. So Dirk Perryboom ends up being a universalist as well. Most universalists do believe in, in free will and moral responsibility, both. So that type of view, I don't know what the name, we could call it hard determinism, maybe. That's correct. That's exactly um, the name. It's almost unrepresented among Christian philosophers historically, I think. I'm struggling to think of a single case. I mean, I can dig around and find a few open theists in the history of Christian theology, but yeah, that, that yeah. Uh, hard determinist view, I think, is almost just not there. That's right. And, and as you said, the, uh, the universalists typically believe in moral responsibility. If you mm -hmm. take folks like Robin Perry, for example, who happened to be my editor on this book, uh, Robin Perry is a universalist, but he affirms that God ultimately forgives all sinners, mm -hmm. but they were blameworthy for what they've done. They just have... They, they ultimately will all be forgiven in universalistic fashion. What Dirk Perryboom affirms is more radical than this, is saying they're all going to heaven because no one deserved to not go to heaven. So they were not blameworthy, so they didn't need forgiveness. Whereas the more middle-of-the-road uh, Christian philosopher who affirms universalism will say that just God forgives everybody in the end. Yeah. I mean, it seems like God wouldn't be actually upset about anything. There would be no divine wrath. I mean, he would just be, I guess, pitying all these poor beings incapable of... Uh, I mean, he wouldn't like the things that were going on that we're doing, but he couldn't blame us because he knows that we're not blameworthy. And that's so right. He would just be sitting back going, well, that's unfortunate. I guess I should fix this. Yeah. But that's, <laughs> that's not what you see in the Bible, though. <laughs> Yeah, and it's a little bit what uh, the Armenians are sometimes accusing Calvinists of uh, believing or at least uh, of entailing. So these are, you know, yeah. when you take hard determinism, I think is a view that's sort of how the Armenian thinks the Calvinist uh, view paints God, basically. Yeah, well, that's because they're not sympathetic to compatibilism. They just, they think that's not a correct account of free will. That's correct. So back to Romans 9, you're not saying that it's obviously Calvinistic. I mean, as an open theist, I think I understand why 
even if Paul is an open theist, I think I understand why people would still object to what he says about Jacob and Esau and about Pharaoh. They're uh, thinking that's unfair, that he's chosen different purposes for them. And, well, I don't think that's unfair, but that's quite a different thing than choosing someone to be punished in hell forever, even before they exist or have done anything. I mean, that's that's another ball game there. I guess I'd see why it sounds Calvinist, but um, what you're saying is I'm not hanging everything on this one passage, although I do think it's it should be read that way, but it's really the power of the whole theology to explain what's mostly in the New Testament, right? Yeah, I think something like that would be my position, and it's somewhat unsatisfying, right? Because you always want to go down to the detail and say, well, see, this one is affirmed in the Bible, therefore, here we go, you have the view that follows. But I, I think it works really like that on topics mm-hmm. that are very controversial. Mm-hmm. So I do think that a Calvinist reading of Romans 9 is the best one. Is this the only reading that is uh, strictly logically possible? I, I don't think so. But I think that you take scripture as the wall and you take a number of passages together and you make the best account of them. And I think that in light of Romans 9 preeminently, but not only, and simply taken together with a number of the classical uh, texts, Calvinism seems to be a pretty good interpretation of the of, of the text. But uh, would I be saying that there's any single proposition in Romans 9 that if true logically entails Calvinism? That'd be very difficult to argue. I mean, yeah, a deductive argument is a very high standard, so I don't think that we can make one like that. But if you read the text overall in context and in with the additional uh, teachings of the whole Bible, I do think that Calvinism is correct. Dr. Bignot, thanks for talking with us. Thanks, that was a pleasure, Dale. This week's thinking music has been the track Histoire d'un Truit by Salmo. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download that entire track. Next week, part two of my interview with Dr. Guillaume Bignon. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.